Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, A Desert Experience, with a message titled, Saved, Restored, Move On. So let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus 15, verses 13 to 27, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. An important lesson to learn in our lives is that we must press forward even while we never forget the past. Some people seem fixated on the past, paralyzed with fear, they're unable to move forward, and others are always enthusiastic about what lies ahead, but they forget the lessons of the past and they seem condemned to making all the mistakes that they've made before, unable to learn the lessons they should have learned. For the Christian, the fixed point remains in the past. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised from the dead. Forget that, and you forget the grace that saved you. But we are to grow in the grace. We are always to move forward. And the book of Exodus really does showcase that reality. The book presents Israel as a band of slaves redeemed by God. They're delivered from Egypt, and now they're on the road to the promised land, but they can't just get there immediately. They have an important appointment to keep. It's the appointment at the foot of Mount Sinai. There at the holy mountain, they're going to meet with God, and they'll learn what holiness means and how to live as the people of God, and that's very important. And in a real way, what we find in Exodus really is a template of the Christian life. We've come out of slavery to sin, to Satan's kingdom, to the power of our own flesh, and to the world system in which we lived. Saved, rescued from the death and damnation that would have awaited us. Truly saved, we must never forget. And furthermore, we're on the way to the promised land, the city of our God, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly kingdom, in which death and sin and pain and sorrow are forever banished. That's our destiny. But in the meantime, we must come to the sacred mountain, to the place to learn about holiness. We need to know what kind of God we have and what constitutes righteousness and what it means to worship him. And that's the story of Exodus. And that's the story of our lives in Christ. And so in our study of Exodus, we've left off with Israel singing on the far eastern shore of the Red Sea. The Egyptian army, the army that would have killed many and dragged the rest back into slavery, has now been drowned. They're no more. And so they sang and worshiped to what God had done, praising God for his mighty deeds, determined never to forget. But they continue to sing, and now they sing about the future. So let's read Exodus 15, 13 to 18. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now the chiefs of Edom are dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. You remember this is still the song that Israel sang on the shore of the Red Sea. But this latter part of the song moves from the amazing event, that is the event of the Egyptians being drowned in the Red Sea, to now looking ahead as to what they expect on the way to the promised land. 
So verse 13, the first verse we read in this section is the transitional verse. That's the verse which read, you have led them, that is Israel, in your steadfast love. And there's one Hebrew word for those two English words. It's the Hebrew word chesed. You know, many times the Bible translates that word as loving kindness, and that's an excellent translation. But in the Hebrew, the word is filled with significance. Hesed is the covenant love of God. That means that God established a binding agreement with Israel. They're his people. You know, in Genesis 12, God promises Abraham that he's going to make of him a great nation. And then in Genesis 15, God promises Abraham that he would give his offspring the promised land. And then in order to emphasize that, Abraham was instructed to cut a number of animals in half and leave them lying on the ground. And then that night, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared, and they went between the cut animals. See, those elements were symbolic of God. And God was saying, I walk between these animals, and in ancient treaty form, I commit my holiness to my word. What I have promised, I will do. Chesed. Hebrew people use that word to describe this event. In love, God bound himself to Israel through the covenant that he had cut with Abraham. And that covenant made some 500 years before the Egyptian army was drowned in the Red Sea. That covenant is the reason those people were saved. God loved his people because he made a binding agreement with Abraham. It's not unlike our situation. God has cut a covenant with us through the cross of Jesus, and that's why sin's power has been broken. So look again at verse 13. You have led in your hesed, in your covenant love, the people whom you have redeemed. And then there's a second word. Did you notice it? It's called redeemed. A price has been paid. The slavery of Egypt has been broken. That army that would have taken them back to Egypt and would have subjected them to slavery all over again, they lie at the bottom of the Red Sea. And then the song goes on. Looking from the Red Sea, the song now looks to the future. Indeed, the song indicates that the deliverance from Egypt is a story which was was even then being told around the entire Middle East. The peoples had heard, it says. Fear has passed through the nations. Israel's God, they said, is unlike all the other gods. Those gods can't kill the firstborn in Egypt, and those gods can't drown the most powerful military in the Red Sea. I mean, who can stand against Israel's God? And so a number of nations are mentioned, and the first one is Philistia. And, you know, please don't think of that nation as, you know, the nation of the Philistines that are mentioned in David's day. You know, those Philistines, that is the ones in David's day, well, they arrived, you know, to the region of Philistia, probably from Cyprus, probably in 1188 BC, many years after Moses. See, in Moses' day, it was a different people group, but they occupied that same land area. In Moses' day, Philistia was also a strong nation. Go back to Exodus 13, verse 17. There we read, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, though that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. You know, when Israel came out of Egypt, they could have gone straight north, and in short order, they would have been in the promised land. But remember, it's a nation of slaves we're talking about. And that strong nation that occupied Philistia, that wasn't a slave nation. And should Israel have encountered them in battle, they would have fled before him. They had little faith in God. 
But now after the Egyptian army was drowned in the Red Sea, the powerful nation of Philistia would have heard that Pharaoh's powerful charioteers had been overthrown by God. And Philistia, that is the entire powerful nation, began to tremble. Who are these people coming out of Egypt? And Moses, in teaching Israel this song, wants them to know about the reaction of Philistia. You aren't a nation of slaves, he says. You're the people of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then next, Moses teaches them to sing about the chiefs of Edom, the leaders of Moab. Well, the Edomites were the descendants of Esau. Well, Israel was not to defeat them, and they weren't supposed to dispossess them from their land. They were supposed to pass through their territory on the way to the promised land. Edom would never stand against them, the song goes, and neither would Moab. Moab, as well as Ammon, they're the descendants of Lot. Indeed, the song says, not only will Israel's neighbors not intervene when they take the promised land, but the inhabitants of Canaan, the inhabitants of the promised land, the very people that Israel was to fight in war, those inhabitants would melt away. And the point being made is that the conditions are right then in place for Israel to advance into the land that God has given them. No one will stand against them. Fear has gripped all of them. Promises found in verse 17, you, Yahweh, you will bring Israel into the land. You're going to plant them, meaning that they're going to be established. They're going to grow into a great civilization in that land. Indeed, verse 17 even anticipates that in the promised land, there will be a place called the mountain of God. We know that in time, that would become the temple mount. It would be the very mountain where the glorious temple would be built and where people from all over the earth would journey there just to hear about the greatness of Israel's God. Indeed, that was the future of the nation. And the people who were then standing on the banks of the Red Sea were called upon to sing. Sing, says Moses, sing. Know what your future is and take hope. The Lord will reign over you and from you to the whole earth forever and ever. Make that the hope of your faith. Last month, our friends at InDoubt launched the InDoubt Show with host Andrew Marcus, and it hit the ground running. The show kicked off with Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld and included a segment called Dangerous Doctrines, where Dr. John and Andrew confront and unpack, unravel, shed light on some of the crooked theological thinking out there today. The In Doubt Show also recently featured a conversation with a co-creator of one of the most popular current Christian dramatic series, The Chosen. Just a few of the great selection of guests so far and many more to come. So stay tuned for new engaging conversations with Christian experts and leaders ready to speak into the relevant issues of life, faith, and culture young adults are facing today. The In Doubt Show, online at indoubt.ca or at the In Doubt YouTube channel. And be sure to subscribe so never to miss a new episode. As Israel stood on the banks of the Red Sea, they were to learn that their future was secure. If God was full of power, and if he had made a covenant with his chosen people, then they needed to listen very carefully to the future promises he had given. They needed to embrace those promises fully and set off to the future as God would have them. If in the future things got tough, 
or if nations threaten them with warfare, or any other threat might make them doubt the promises of God, all they needed to do was to look back and remember the lessons of the Red Sea. No nation could prevail against them. God was committed to them by covenant. Again, at risk of being redundant, dear Christian friend, don't you see in this? It's your story as well. When you struggle with doubts or when you ask, you know, is God really for me? Is he perhaps against me? Or will I be overcome by my enemies? Then look back to the cross and the empty tomb. Stand there as if you're at the shores of the Red Sea and then move forward with confidence. So let's continue in our text. Exodus 15, 19 to 21. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. You know, verse 19 is really a summary verse. It seems that Moses, who's the author of the book of Exodus, you know, he's really not in a hurry to move the story forward too quickly. A summary statement is required at this point. Remember, says Moses, that God made a distinction between you and the Egyptian charioteers. Remember what you did. You walked on dry land. Remember what they did. They were drowned. Never in the future should you forget this. And then there's Miriam. Would you remember who she is? Our text simply says she's a prophetess, and she's the sister of Aaron the priest. As a prophetess, she's chosen at special times to speak inspired words by God. So here it's important to make a distinction between Miriam's role and Moses' role. Moses is the kind of a prophet who's given the charge to speak words from God, words that escape their times and that are written down and become Scripture. The words of God for God's people at all times. Miriam's role is slightly different. She's to speak to specific people at a specific time period. And there's a world of a difference here, a difference that mustn't be quickly passed over. Miriam is like Agabus in the New Testament. See, he's a prophet who predicted that, you know, Paul would be arrested when he went to Jerusalem. And that prophetic word is a time-bound word. It's, it's not a word for all people at all times. Same with Miriam, sister of Aaron. She is to take leadership among the women, and she is to teach the women to sing the song of Moses. The words of her song are the very first two lines that Moses taught the people. And that's significant. Miriam makes sure that the women also are singing. They're praising. They're also remembering the mighty acts of God. Both men and women are required to remember. And this role of Marion is an interesting role. She is, as you're going to remember, Aaron's sister, but that means she's Moses' sister as well. And most people agree that she was no doubt Moses' older sister. That's the very sister that watched over his little basket as baby Moses was put into it. And if that's correct, She's also the one who encouraged, went before Pharaoh's daughter to take baby Moses back to a woman to nurse her. She took leadership to make sure that Moses went back to his mother. In that way, Moses was raised with the knowledge of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, Miriam is no insignificant figure. I know that later on she does sin, but yet, right here, her role is to ensure that not only the men of Israel, but the women, understand 
what God has done. Well, let's continue to read the chapter. After the glory of the Red Sea, Israel is now ready to move forward. Unfortunately, however, the nation doesn't remember her lessons well. So let's go to Exodus 15, 22 to 24. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went to the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it is named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Now, please notice that the problem is not that they are thirsty. I know in a hot desert where they now are, dehydration could well have been a very significant issue. See, on the one hand, Israel had achieved their objectives. They were beyond the reach of the Egyptians. But that also meant that they couldn't count on the Egyptians anymore to take care of them if they ran into trouble. So what should they do now? Well, they should have gone to Moses, and they should have made Moses aware of their needs, and they should have asked him to entreat the favor of God. Won't the God who overthrew the Egyptians and who kept covenant with his people through Abraham also care for us now in this crisis of a water shortage? I hope you hear this. This is what they should have done. They should have learned from the past, and they should have responded in faith, in confident trust in their God. After all, that's what their history taught them. They didn't do that. Instead of asking Moses to pray, they approach him to complain. They grumble. They protest against Moses' bad leadership. I mean, how did he let things get this bad? And in this sense, it almost gives us the impression as if the events of the Red Sea never happened. Let me explain. Go back to Exodus 14, the chapter that dealt with a problem there. The Egyptians were coming up on Israel. It looked like they were going to slaughter them. Chapter 14, verse 11. Israel says to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? See, they were saying, This is the worst mistake we've ever made to believe you and to let you lead us out of Egypt. Well, we might say, That was then, this is now. You know, in between the panic of the western side of the Red Sea and the concern over dehydration and death on the eastern side of the Red Sea, there's the miracle of the drowning of the Egyptian soldiers and the song that they had learned. But it seems they learned nothing. Instead of remembering the past and the great deeds of God, they approach the future as if they've learned nothing. Or at the very least, they've forgotten everything. They don't say, pray to God, the God we encountered at the Red Sea. Instead, they complain and say, you know, we've got nothing to drink and we're going to die. How does God respond? Later in the book of Exodus in chapter 33, we'll learn that God is gracious and compassionate that he's slow to anger and, and abounding in hesed, in loving kindness. And here, rather than a stiff rebuke, God shows he's going to deal graciously with them and help these people to come to faith. Exodus 15, 25 to 27, And he, that is Moses, cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and to give ear to his commandment, and to keep his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water, and seventy palm trees, and they camped there by the water. See, everyone remembers the miracle of the Red Sea, but this miracle is not remembered as well. And yet this miracle also saved the lives of the people of Israel. This miracle, although it was perhaps less dramatic,
But this miracle had Moses throwing a log into undrinkable water, and it's immediately transformed. And just like at the Red Sea, the lesson had to be relearned. And there God makes a rule with them, a rule they all needed to learn. If they listen to the voice of God and they don't turn away from God, if they act in a way which is befitting the holiness of God, if they do God's commands, stop there. Because as of yet, they haven't received the commands at Mount Sinai. The only command they've received is to keep the Passover. But God is going to give them Ten Commandments. And they're going to have to commit themselves in the future to keep all the commands of God. Then if they do that, none of the diseases of Egypt will fall on them. Look, this isn't a promise that believers won't get sick. Rather, it's the promise that the plagues of Egypt won't fall on Israel. Without God gives a revelation of himself. I'm Yahweh, your healer. I'm your God, who even though you sin against me will forgive will heal you of your rebellion and deliver you in the day of my anger. That's also our promise from the cross. There at the cross, our healer has determined that the curse of sin would fall onto his son and that our God through Jesus would make us eternally his. None of the diseases of Egypt, none of the damnation they felt would fall on us. That's the way forward. Remember God's mighty deeds in the past. Remember that God will continue to extend mercy. And then set your face to the future. Grab a hold of the promise of God. Go forward in faith and without fear. Thanks for a great message today, John. Let me ask you, why are God's people so quick to forget his faithfulness next time a struggle comes around in life? Yeah, isn't this the the whole point of Scripture, for instance, to continually review God's great activities in the past and from those activities to take hope as we look towards the future. Our faith is bolstered as we think about what God's great deeds are. Now, that's true. We have to do that in Scripture. But wouldn't it be good to also do, look back at our own lives, our own individual salvation, whatever experience also that we have sensed that God has dealt with in our lives, and remember, recall it, bring it to mind, uh, remind ourselves this is evidence of the saving purposes of God in our lives, how different we would be if we grasp those activities in the past and that as we think about the future, to think God has not changed. See, this is deliberate activity. We must become deliberate people. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, A Desert Experience, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Have you ever been too timid to share the good news of Jesus Christ? It's a common concern and a very old obstacle. The reasons for our caution and reticence are varied. We don't want to face a negative response, or we don't know how to answer people's questions or rebuttals. Our fear can become so large it swallows our voice. We all need help in speaking our faith. Well, this month, Back to the Bible Canada offers a free book by Matt Smethurst called Before You Share Your Faith. It's not about an evangelism method. It speaks to our motives and our fears. It it addresses our concerns and offers practical help. So to request your free copy, call us at 1-800-663-2425 
or visit backtothebible.ca. Let it encourage you to share the good news of Jesus. And please consider offering a financial gift to support the ministry this month.